Hi, my name is Philip, and welcome back to Deep Tech Stories. In a prior episode, I talked with Sean Kenny about so-called fourth-generation nuclear reactors, in particular on the benefits and advantages compared to classical light water reactors. However, we didn't talk about how companies build those new nuclear reactors. Oddly enough, it is not that hard to build a light water reactor and keep it stable. We first added nuclear reactors to the power grid in the 1950s without the help of a computer. Yet, nowadays it's quite common to see a construction time of up to 10 years or more, far beyond anything reasonable in an economy of scale to make a dent in energy production and climate change. That is another point where fourth generation nuclear reactors differ from their conventional siblings. Due to the way they work, a variety of architectures and power outputs are possible, where seemingly every startup has their own approach. One of them is Copenhagen Atomics, attempting to build a 100 megawatt reactor on an assembly line, and their CTO Aslak Stupsgaard explains how they build their reactors. It is of course not something you just built in your basement, but it is still something that is fairly simple to to build and develop compared to some of the more traditional nuclear technologies. And I guess that sort of ties into what are the differences. Well, in a traditional nuclear reactor, light water reactor, you have solid fuel and you use liquid water as a moderator to cool the solid fuel and extract the, the, the heat that you then turn into, for example, electricity. And this was just one of the, one of the many ways that people looked at building reactors back, uh, back from the 40s and onwards. And many different concepts were considered, and molten salt reactors was one of those. So it's, it's an old technology in a way. It was among the first technologies to be considered together with solid fuel. So they so roughly branch out in, in liquid fuel and, and solid fuel kind. And even within the liquid fuel, there was multiple different liquid fuel that were considered as a fuel source. And, and this, of course, means that the, the fuel that you have in your reactor is uh, what chemical form it's on and, and, and how it might be dissolved. When they started building these reactors, like you had, of course, it came out of the weapons development. And, and after the war, people started looking at how to use this uh, energy for peaceful purposes, mainly for, for electricity production. But yeah, so people started looking at how to, how to make a, a sustained chain reaction instead of a, a supercritical chain reaction like in a bomb. And one of the simplest ways that was also used during the Manhattan program was to use solid fuel. So you, you take your uranium, you, you maybe enrich it, and you, you moderate it so that you can produce heat or power. And, and this means that you have to dig uranium out of the ground. You maybe have to enrich it. And there were several different ways that were looked at of how to enrich it. And the technology advanced over the years to also make it more economical to enrich it. But in general, you then take this enriched uranium and you fabricate it into solid fuel and you run that through a reactor. And that has some advantages, mainly in forms of being like simple technology and, and so, solids kind of have some inherent nice features about them that they're sort of, they're always the place you, you place them unless they melt, of course. But they also have inherent disadvantages. One of them being that you can't do anything to the fuel while it's in the reactor. So you can't uh, extract uh, some of the byproducts of the fission reaction. You can maybe shuffle them around, but you're somewhat limited in that you, if you wanted to do some kind of chemical extraction or repressing, you have to take the fuel out, let it cool down so it's not as radioactive, and then do chemistry on it, and then then fabricate new fuel from that that you put in a reactor. So early on, people sort of looked at the possibilities of having a liquid fuel in a reactor. And one of the first things they looked at was taking um, uranium as a solvable uh, compound, uh, mainly uranium uh, nitride, 
and dissolve that in water or heavy water and then create a, a geometry that makes a critical chain reaction that can produce heat from, from such a geometry. But that has some of the same disadvantages as, as uh, traditional light water reactors that water boils at 100 C. So to get usable power out of it, you need to sort of run the whole thing at high pressure. And that mm. causes problems in terms of containment, basically if your fuel is then dissolved in the liquid, but also in corrosion. And people also looked at liquid metals. So you can, of course, take uranium and melt it, but it has a very high melting point. So you need to alloy it with something that uh, reduces the melting point and that also doesn't absorb too many of the neutrons. So there was a whole program where they looked at liquid metal reactors and how how could you possibly run a reactor where the fuel is liquid as a metal? And then finally, they were looking at reactors for uh, airplane propulsion to create uh, bombers that could stay in the air for weeks or months on end, similar mm. to how the U-Bots had gotten their reactors, but it needed to be much lighter to be able to be on a plane. And so they looked at reactors that had uh, high power densities and had uh, some different features that meant that you would prefer to have a liquid fuel. And they looked at these different liquid fuels and, and they sort of came up with uh, the idea of what about just having the fuel as a salt and uranium salts like chlorides and chlorides also have very high boiling points or melting points. So you, you then dissolve them in other salts that have low neutron absorption, but lower melting point. And so they had this crazy idea of we could actually make a plane where you have a reactor on board where the fuel is a, a salt is diluted into a lower melting point salt that you then pump around to extract the heat. This was a quite a different idea for, for the period of how to build reactors. And it was funded for a couple of years and, and they even built a test reactor, but that program was sort of finally uh, <laughs> scrapped because they you had intercontinental ballistic missiles and there are several problems mainly around the shielding that made it infeasible for, for flight. But all the people working on this project sort of saw the, the benefit of a technology like this. So they started developing it for peaceful purposes. And that's sort of uh, like they also built a, a, another test reactor. And the technology was fairly matured, but then sort of scrapped in the 70s, where many other nuclear technologies was also scrapped. So you have the, the classic light water reactor with its uh, very healthy blue glow in there. Yeah. Which is like those... those uranium sticks as far as i know so those uranium sticks and then you have some some moderator in there and you pump the water through to get the, the heat out yeah so that's sort of among the very early designs of solid fuel reactors and that was adopted for submarine reactors and they sort of led the whole development of a traditional light water reactor for submarines and then that technology was scaled up in a demonstration called shipping port and just kept being uh, increased in size and, and eventually became the commercialized uh, new tech technology that we have today and compared to that, what would be the components in the in the molten salt reactor? Do I have some, like, is the the salt that I get the heat out of also at the same time the fuel and the moderator? Or yes, yeah. So in a traditional reactor, you have these uh, small pellets that are stacked into tubes, and water is then run between the tubes to both uh, moderate the neutrons. That means that you you slow down the neutrons, their velocity, so they come more likely to interact with the fuel. That means you basically need a small amount of fuel to create a, a, a critical reactor. But the moderator and the water uh, sort of serves a secondary purpose of extracting the heat. And you then circulate that water to produce heat. And But that means that you need to have the water under high pressure because producing energy from 100C boiling water is, is fairly uh, inefficient. So usually you pressurize it 
to up to hundreds of bars and to get it to maybe 300 degrees or even higher. And that causes some inherent problems where you have high pressure. If you lose the pressure, the water flashes to steam. And that means that you also lose the ability to cool the fuel. And then now you have this classical case of nuclear fuel that can't get rid of its decay heat and possibly might melt down. And if we oppose that to um, a Molson reactor, you have the fuel being liquid itself. So you don't have high pressure. It melts depending on your fuel ratio around four to 500 C. And then you operate the reactor well above that from around 600 to 700 C. One of the main benefits of that is that you can circulate the fuel itself. So you have good heat transfer coefficient or heat transfer efficiency. And in a case where you lose uh, uh, pressure or you burst a pipe, you can uh, let the salt drain passively out of the core geometry. So it's not like if you lose, this, you, you lose the, the piping or, or pressure that you have everything flashed to steam and your fuel being left without cooling. You can sort of in, uh, design reactors to inherently be uh, able to get rid of their decay heat by the geometry you pick. So you can imagine that you have um, this uh, reactor core where you're circulating the fuel and you can have a catch band at the bottom where even though a pipe breaks and everything spills out, it all gets caught by a catch pan where there's the ability to passively uh, remove the decay heat. So there's one of the, the main advantages of using a liquid fuel and a liquid fuel that doesn't boil if it loses pressure. For these salts, typically you have uh, around 100, or sorry, 1,000 C uh, from the boiling point to the uh, from the melting point to the boiling point, so that means that even in an accident where the temperature increases above the operating temperature, you still have a very big margin until the fuel uh, starts to boil, and that's of course an advantage because you would not like uh, even in an accident to have any uh, uh, of the nuclear material evaporate away from the core, or if you have a burst of containment, you like that the, all the fuel stays in that reactor. So with that technique, I basically inherently avoid any Chernobyl or Fukushima kind of the, well, events that could be happening because the moment the, yes. the salt would exit somehow, it cools down. So you still, of course, have different type of, of accidents that can happen in a molten salt reactor, but the severity and the consequences are typically much, much lower than in a live water reactor. And uh, generally, reactors that fulfill some of these criteria are called fourth generation nuclear reactors because these uh, group of reactors have some of these inherent uh, safety features. That means that, for example, if you lose power or if you lose cooling, it doesn't result in a catastrophic accident. Now, that's the, the one part of the, the safety, at least at home in Germany, every time something with nuclear power comes up, it's either that the nuclear reactor XY is going to be shut down by year so-and-so, or that they're looking for storage for the nuclear waste that comes out of the classic reactors. And I think I've heard that you planning on using either the waste or thorium. Can you explain on how that would work? Yeah, so it's it's actually both. And and the reason for this is that if, if you want to build new nuclear, you have to ask, why are you doing it? The first reason is to be able to make a new energy source that can scale to meet global energy demand. One of the driving factors of our company is to be able to have a new technology that can really scale the amount of energy that we can put on the grid. And if we look at other types of nuclear, besides some cost issues and for some of them, some technical issues that are not advantageous, biggest problem we see with traditional nuclear is that it, it's not a technology that's very well suited for scaling to meet global energy production. And so are many of the 
the other technologies that people are looking at, or like neither are those. Uh, because if you try and sort of look at how much energy we use and how much energy we're gonna use in the future, uh, it's it's a really big problem to create a new technology that can actually scale. And you can of course also look: are there any of the existing technologies that could scale to higher energy demand? And, and right now, it seems like the best candidates are actually coal, oil, and gas. Those we could fairly easily scale. So you have to create some technology that can scale faster than those with an economic incentive to really make an impact. And if we then look at how nuclear access could possibly scale, well, we can, of course, uh, pick these monitor reactors for some of their safety benefits or some of their nuclear characteristics uh, that we briefly mentioned. But the most exciting thing about monitor reactors is that because the fuel is liquid, you can actually reprocess the fuel while the air reactor is operating. So that means that you can utilize the fuel much better and, and burn a much bigger proportion of what you can burn in a traditional reactor. And then the second part of the puzzle is that if you want to do all this in what's called thermal spectrum reactors, you, you need an energy source or a fuel source that can scale to meet the, the energy demand. And traditionally, we use the enriched uranium. But the problem with that is that you need enrichment of the uranium that's in the ground. And so to... Uh, scale global energy demand, you could, of course, scale this enrichment capacity, but you need to do so by multiple factors. And so that's a huge challenge in of itself and, and has also some problematic things in regards to proliferation. The alternative is to make a reactor that produces more fuel than it consumes, and that's called a breeder reactor. So in this reactor, you have the uh, excess neutrons coming out of uh, the fission chain reaction. And if you utilize those neutrons uh, very well, you can actually produce more fissile fuel than you consume in the reactor. And this has sort of been the holy grail for reactors for many years. And sort of the problem with this is that if you run on a traditional uranium cycle, you have to run in a fast neutron spectrum. That means that you don't slow down the neutrons in order for the neutron economy to sort of add up where you can produce more fuel than you consume. Uh, but if you run on thorium cycle where you, you take thorium instead of uranium and you Avoid it with neutrons and you let it decay to uranium-233. That's the amount of neutrons and, and protons in the nucleus. So that's a different isotope than what you use in, in traditional light water reactors. Then you can do that in a, in a thermal spectrum. And because of how the nuclear physics all works out, you can produce more fuel this way than you consume. And so, you, again, you may, I'd ask why, why would you want to produce more fuel than you need? And that's because in order to scale the technology, you need a lot more fissile fuel than is in existence today. So you sort of look at a technology that has the, the possibility to both utilize all the fuel that you put inside the reactor because you can do chemical reprocessing on it, that has a, a lot of safety benefits compared to other types of reactors, and that can run on thorium in a thermal spectrum. And so this means that you can sort of build these reactors and you can scale them up to meet global energy demand. And this you can only do with thorium. You can't do it with uranium in a thermal spectrum. So there's still some part of the piece, uh, puzzle here that we're missing. Uh, and, and the other part is that to start a thorium cycle, you need some fuel to start the first reactors on. And you could do this on enriched uranium, but as to sort of what I alluded to before, there, there's problems with enriched uranium. It's prohibitively expensive. And if we wanted to scale to large capacities, you need to scale global enrichment capacity quite a bit. And so you can sort of look at what other fuels are there that you could use to start such a, a thorium cycle on. And here, spent fuel from traditional reactors still have a lot of fissile material in them, both in the form of uranium-235, which is what they started on, but that is isotopically mixed with the uranium-238, which also came out of the ground. So those are 
difficult to separate because they're chemically different. But there's also plutonium that's produced in the fuel from the fission reaction uh, that is chemically different than the uranium. And a large fraction of that is also fissile. So you can take out the, the plutonium and other transuranics, which is also what is the long-lived waste in traditional fuel. And you can use them to kickstart a, a reactor running on thorium. But for this to really make sense, you need to have a liquid fuel so you can actually reprocess it while it's running. Because it, you can also do something similar in traditional reactors, but it doesn't really end up giving you any net positive benefits because you still have to run through all the, the hurdles of a traditional live water reactor where you have to take out the fuel and do reprocessing and put it back in and you can only utilize a few percentages. So if you sort of put all these pieces together, you have a really potent technology uh, where you can take existing fissile fuel from spent fuel and you can mix it together with the thorium as a salt and, and use it for your fuel in your reactors when you when you start these. And then you have on top of that a technology where you can process the salt while it's running. So that means that you can actually burn all the material instead of just a few percent. And you can do this thing where you produce more fuel than you consume. And this means that you can build more reactors because you're uh, steadily building your fissile inventory over years and decades. So there's multiple moving puzzles to this. And this is sort of the technology and, and the path that we chose to, to go down because we think that it's... It's exciting that you can actually remove the nuclear waste that we have already, which is deemed a problem, while producing energy for the whole world. Um, when you say produce more fuel than you consume, do you mean so the fuel in, in the reactor gets more, but is it then just to scale that respective reactor, or can you somehow extract the fuel without having to shut down everything around it? Yeah, so you can, in principle, extract the fuel without shutting anything down and even pull it out of the reactor. But you might not want to construct your reactor like that because that could also mean that someone could divert material for illicit purposes. So what we're leaning more towards is that while you're running your reactor, uh, and in our case, we plan to start running these only five years at a time, while you're in the beginning consuming fissile fuel, you might produce less fissile fuel from thorium in the beginning because of the neutronics and how, how the chain reaction and nuclear physics work out. But over time, your proportion of, of uranium will, will build up and you'll have this um, better utilization of the fuel. So you might actually start consuming more fuel than you use over the first coming years or even decade, and then sort of transition into a cycle where you're mainly running on uranium and producing more fuel than you consume. And the idea that we're leaning towards is sort of having the reactor run with all this fuel, even considering the, the, the buildup of material, and then you stop the reactor and you transfer that fuel to another reactor that keeps running with it. And you can even take a portion of that fuel together with portions of fuel from other reactors and use that to start new reactors. But the handling of the fuel and the transport of fuel and the processing of the fuel is something that's under high regulation from, uh, from international agencies like the IAEA. So it's not something you can just easily do. And, and it's not something that a small company can sort of say, this is how we're going to do it. There's going to be many approvals and, and regulatory hoops to go through before everyone's happy with the method of how you're doing it, how you're uh, transporting or handling the fuel. Just to make sure I, I understood everything. So you have your, your thorium, which I understood is much more preferable over the, the usual uranium, because you don't need to enrich it and therefore create a lot of waste around it. And that uranium, uh, that thorium in the reactor then gets a few more neutrons on it and then gets into a different decay channel that is much faster than the, the usual one. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, so it, it's, 
in this thermal spectrum, the amount of neutrons that are emitted per fission is different from plutonium of different isotopes, uranium of different isotopes. So it's it's more or less the, the utilization of that fuel depends on how many neutrons on average are emitted and also what is the propensity of that fuel to just absorb a neutron instead of fissioning. And so that factor varies for different isotopes and it also varies for the, the energy of the neutrons that hits that isotope has. And so generally you get more neutrons in a fast spectrum than you do in a thermal spectrum. And it's then only in the fissile isotope that you get from thorium that in a thermal spectrum produces enough neutrons to breed. So you need one neutron to keep the chain reaction going, and then you need another neutron to produce some more fuel. And then you need a slight excess because you're going to have mm-hmm. loss of neutrons, both from the salt and from the structural materials. And since the neutrons, you get more neutrons out in a fast spectrum, most of these breeder type reactors that have been considered in the past look at uh, running the reactor in a fast spectrum. But even though you get better neutron economy in a fast spectrum, you had the disadvantages that you need much more fuel because what the moderator does is slow down neutrons and increase the probability of a reaction. That means that you need less fuel to have a critical mass. And so if you're trying to uh, produce reactors where you need a fixed amount of fuel to start them, you of course want this amount to be as small as possible. And if you do fast reactors, you need sometimes on the order of 10 times more fuel than you do in a thermal spectrum. So even though they can produce more fuel than a thermal reactor, they also need much more fuel to start. So if you actually look at the the mechanics of scaling a, a reactor fleet, it's much more beneficial to be in a thermal spectrum, even though they're a little bit uh, worse in the in neutron economy, they're much better in terms of fuel u- utilization, simply because you need a, a much smaller amount of fissile material to start a reactor. Mm-hmm. And if we speak about fuel utilization, how much of the thorium would I need to fuel an average household? Yeah, so for for every gram of fissile material you fission, you roughly get one megawatt day. So that's one megawatt for a whole day. And if you go through some math of the whatever country you're living in and what the average uh, energy for use throughout your whole life for for a person in that country, it it varies a lot, of course, but it's on the order of uh, 100 to 200 grams you need to fission. Or said another way, it's like around 100 to 200 megawatts a day of energy you use throughout your entire life. So for most people, this means that all thorium that you can hold in your hand, if you fission all this, or of course you have to first hit it by neutron so it becomes uranium-233, as we talked about, so you breathe the material, and then fission it. Then you have all the energy you need for your entire life. So that's both electricity and transport, fertilizer, everything. So the amount of material each person needs is... Uh, is a ball of thorium that they can fit in their hand. And thorium is not a very expensive material. It's uh, not widely used. It's used to be used in lanterns. It, it's still used a little bit in welding rods, but its industrial purposes is actually quite limited. So it's not mined uh, very much for industrial use, but it is something that we get out of the ground from mining other minerals. And so there is already a, a supply chain and it's not something where you have to go out and and make new mines, you can actually mine all the thorium you need from, from existing mines. How much is there? Or for how long would it be sufficient if we would now completely switch? I think with current known supplies, it's thousands of years. And of course, a lot, a lot of, is going to happen in the mining industry in thousand years. So it's, it's more or less infinite for, from the perspective where we are now. 
Yeah, I mean, before the run is out, we probably have found some random asteroid flying around with plenty of it. And you can say also for uranium perspective, there's lots of uranium in the world. And of course, a, a small fraction of this is uranium-233 that you, that is fissile and that is what you enrich in traditional fuels. So there's also plenty of uranium, even uh, fissile uranium in the world. The problem is the, the enrichment of that uranium to a level where it can be used in a reactor. That is just, it. you need to scale the enrichment capacity of the world manifold in order to meet global supply. But of course, if you're only trying to uh, meet the supply of a, a local nation, it might be sufficient. But if we're trying to figure out some energy source that can replace coal, oil, and gas, then, then it's not sufficient. And the, the end product of the whole thing would then be similar to the current nuclear waste, or? Yeah, so the you, you can say that the end products are actually the same, but it's the proportion that you get out that's different. So when you, you run a reactor, you're both going to get these uh, transuranics, which is uh, isotopes that are higher up in the periodic table than uranium. And these are problematic because they have very long, long half-lives. And so you need to store them safely. They're also chemically toxic. So you need to store them safely for thousands, if not millions of years. Uh, and the other waste product is sufficient products. And those are basically half of the periodic table uh, spread out. But most of these elements are common elements are not toxic, but they're of course highly radioactive. But the fact that they're highly radioactive also means that they decay quickly to something that's stable. And most of them decay to something that's stable within days or weeks. But a few of the fission products decays um, to something that's stable within 100 to 300 years. So in general, those you only have to store safely for up to 300 years before they're the same radioactivity uh, or radiotoxicity as it's often measured in. As uranium, but the feature here we're talking about molten reactors is that you can do chemical reprocessing while the reactor is running or after it's running, uh, much more economically than you can do on traditional solid fuel. So you can pull out only the fission products and keep all the transuranics, and just keep them in the react or keep them in subsequent reactors. And that means that you can just keep incinerating them. And of course, there'll always be some transuranics in the fuel because you're also going to produce a very small amount just from thorium chain or, or uranium-233, or there's going to be some plutonium left that you started with that you're never going to completely burn. But as long as you keep in the reactor, you'll continually consume them and they'll end up in an equilibrium where they're a very small proportion. And so you never have to actually dispose of this as long as you're running your reactor fleet. It's only the fission products that you have to dispose of. And those are the ones that you only mm. need to keep safe for 300 years. How do I get them out? If I, Because you mentioned earlier that I wouldn't want to design a, a reactor in a way that people can just tinker with it. There's multiple methods to sort of do a chemical extraction. And while you're running with the reactor, you just want to extract a sufficient amount of fission products to optimize your your neutron economy and your breeding of new fuel. And you're also looking at extracting some of them from a corrosion perspective because these salts are, of course, high temperature and, and are corrosive. So you, you sort of construct around that and build from materials that allows you to run a reactor like this for five or more years. And so, so there's uh, some extraction of fission products from that perspective. From a longer-term perspective, for example, if you run a reactor for five or more years, you might also want to take it through a chemical processing plant to clean up some of the other things that could build up over many years and might become detrimental on that scale. And what we would like to do there is basically operate and, and handle it at a centralized facility. So you only need one or maybe a few of these around the world where you transport the fuel to and then you do further reprocessing. Mm -hmm. And that is something that has to be done under like supervision of international authorities. 
but the reprocessing that we can do in React, so that if as long as we keep everything inside the React, so that's something that where we have a little bit more freedom, because if you can't get into the React and extract any of those fishing products, it's basically not more harmful than the fuel itself. And so there's multiple sort of strategies there, and and likely one would want to start with uh, less reprocessing or implementations of your reactors in the beginning as you develop the technology, and then add on different reprocessing steps further down the line as they mature more and as, as they become more needed. But in general, the the sort of three main methods that you can extract from is uh, one is by basically letting the volatile or insoluble compounds plate out or bubble out of the salt. So some of the fission products, when they become a salt, they have a, a low enough boiling point and high enough volatility that you can simply let them evaporate out of the salt and then capture them in, in filters or scrubbers. So that's one way of pulling out fission products. Mm-hmm. Another one that was developed back in the 60s when they were originally making this technology is um, doing um, sparging or chemical treatments where you, for example, bubble through chlorine if it's chloride salt or chlorine if it's a chloride salt. And that you can sort of change some of the chemical states of the fuel. You can, uh, in fluorine, in the case of uranium, you can extract uranium from salt and you can leave everything else to be treated elsewise. You can also do other chemical extraction, for example, with reducing with metals. So you can run the salt over a a metal, both solid or, or liquid, and sort of force some of the the elements to reduce out to middle states. And and finally, you can also do electrochemistry on it where you you use electrodes and, and chemical potentials to preferentially pull out specific compounds. And uh, I guess there's also a fourth one where you distill the salt. So that's sort of in the, the volatile group. Mm-hmm. So there's many different methods of sort of trying to make sure that you only pull out the fission products and leave in all the transuranics. Okay. When you do one of these redirects, you also, after you have thorium being hit by a neutron, it uh, decays into protactinium, uh, and you want to allow that to then further decay into uranium. So there's also some uh, chemical treatment in the separation of this intermediate isotope uh, that you would like to have long-term in order to utilize the fuel best. Mm -hmm. Because if protactinium is left in the reactor, it can absorb a further neutron and then result in a uranium isotope that's not fissile. So there's a bunch of different chemical uh, methods you can sort of use to pull out these fission products. And some of them you can do online and some of them you can do uh, offline uh, years after the reactor has, has been operating. Hi, Philip here. Before you leave, I just wanted to thank you for listening and I hope you learned something in this episode. If that is the case, why not message me at philip at deeptechstories.io. I'm always curious about what you took away and look forward to a discussion with you. That is P-H-I-L-I-P-P at deeptechstories.io. It would also help me out a great deal if you could recommend the episode to a friend of yours that might find it interesting as well. See you again next week for the second part of this interview. Before we started this conversation, Aslak mentioned rather curious ways people thought of using nuclear bombs for energy production. Of course, people also looked at how to use nukes for peaceful purposes, whether it be... uh making canals or lakes and and even underground energy storage so there's like crazy concepts that one of my favorite ones once where you you dig a a deep tunnel or a deep uh, hole down the ground and you explode a nuke and it makes a giant uh, cavity of molten rock and then you you try and extract the energy from that molten rock from the surface and and so you could of course also use nukes for peaceful purposes but people kind of abandoned a bunch of those ideas because they were of course uh, 
problematic in, in several ways, uh, or mainly just because they were uneconomical.